All right. Well, here we are. Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. I'm here today with my friend Arvin. Arvin is a good man. He uh, He's had a lot of his personal struggles throughout his life, but I'm so happy to have him here today because he's doing quite well. And it takes a lot for me to say that somebody's doing quite well. But um, first and foremost, welcome to the corner. Thanks for having me, Pej. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for being for being on on uh, on Peggy's Recovery Corner. So first and foremost, you know, I want to delve into your past. I want to know where you were born, where you were raised, um, you know, your childhood life, and then kind of go into like the other stuff, right? So where are you from? Who is Arvin? So I'm originally from South Orange County, mm -hmm. Mission Viejo. I was born in San Diego. Uh -huh. Lived in San Diego for about like the first four years of my life. Don't really remember much of the San Diego days because I was pretty little. Yeah. But parents relocated to Orange County mm -hmm. where I was raised, Mission Viejo, and still live to this day. And do you have any siblings? I have one younger brother. Okay. And uh, growing up in Mission Viejo, how was it? It was as uh, simple and cushy as could be, man. I really didn't have any problems growing up. Came from a pretty good family. Yeah, we were well off. Both my parents worked. Uh -huh. Both my parents are still together to this day. They both loved me and my brother. Mm -hmm. uh, if anything, they maybe loved me a little too much. You mean like they spoiled you like a lot of Persian parents do? Yeah. I mean, in our house, it was like an unspoken rule that like you do well in school. Uh -huh. We'll provide you anything you want and we'll kind of allow you to be who you want to be, do what you want to do. And So did you do on school? Yeah, I was really studious when I was a younger kid, and school kind of came easy to me. So I really enjoyed having that unspoken rule around. Mm -hmm. I got straight A's all the way through middle school and high school growing up. Mm -hmm. I was graduating in like the valedictorian class of my high school. I had like a white gown when all the rest of the guys had the black gowns. Mm -hmm. And I was like... What does that mean when someone has a white gown? It means you averaged over over a 4.0 GPA throughout all of high school. So I only had like one B in all of high school and it was in an AP class. Mm -hmm. So it counted as like A credits. So you were highly intelligent, very smart, well-read, did good in all your grades and all that. Um, graduating in, as a valedictorian, like did you, were you already experimenting with drugs? Yes. So by this time I had experimented with a little bit of alcohol and marijuana. Mm -hmm. So I was smoking weed. And didn't notice it then, but I was smoking weed before class. Mm -hmm. I would sometimes cut class <laughs> right. to smoke weed, <laughs> but I justified it because I was like, shit, I'm still doing fine in school. If I could pull this off and still get A's, why wouldn't I? I'm right. fun. So it was just alcohol and a little bit of weed, but uh, were you out of control? Like when you were drinking, were you drinking to get drunk? I got out of control near my senior year. Mm -hmm. That's when I found uh, Xanax for the first time also. How'd you find Xanax? It was just introduced uh, in the friend group that I was hanging out with. So I kind of had like one foot in different worlds in high school. So I was hanging out with, I would go to class with all of like the really studious AP kids. Mm -hmm. I would be in study groups with them. When class was out, I'd go hang out with the surfers who were like the stoner kids. And I was on the basketball team all the way through sophomore year too. Mm -hmm. So I had like my athlete friends. Mm -hmm. And uh common theme of like I always just I wanted to fit in, just wanted to to be you wanted part to fit of. in and you were somewhat of a chameleon because you'd hang out with different people and you were doing what different people were doing. Right. Did you surf? No, I still don't to this day. I've tried, but it, I'm just not good at board sports. Like balancing my weight on the board doesn't really work out for me. Were you athletic? 
slightly. I, I knew my role on my basketball team. Okay. I wasn't the, the strongest or the best shooter, but what I lacked for in skill, I made up for in hustle. Okay. I would play lots of defense. I was a great passer, mm-hmm. made everyone around me a better player. So these kids that had Xanax, for example, how do you think they got it? Did you know? Did you know what you were like they were giving you? Like, did, did they tell you they got it out of grandma's medicine cabinet? Did they get it from a dealer? I'm sure people aren't, your kids aren't stupid. Honestly, I didn't really care. But, I just. How did you know it was real? I didn't. You just took it. Yeah. At this time, this was like 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. So this was like before the, like the major fentanyl scene came on. Right. So I'd never even heard of fentanyl. I didn't even know if they were pressed anything. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure one of our friends had a grandma who had a prescription. Okay. So, but, but before that, obviously, like, because you were doing so good in school and all that, you were, did you have dreams, like aspirations, goals? Did you have some kind of, uh, what were you hoping to study to be? Like, was there something on the back end eventually, like, to become somebody? So there always were dreams to become somebody. I just had no idea who. Okay. I still, when I got into college, mm-hmm. I went to San Diego State. And I remember when I was applying, it would ask me what major I wanted to put down. Right. And I had no fucking clue. So what'd you do? Did you just go to go do your electives? So I just went with the most generic one that I could think of. I went with uh, business management and specialized in entrepreneurship. And what made you choose that? Like, did, did was there business people in your family? No, I just thought it would be, I was like, businessman sounds cool. Entrepreneurship, like I, I could see myself owning my own company one day, like mm-hmm. kind of hotshot like, and wasn't specialized in too many. Like there was like finance or marketing mm-hmm. or other areas that you could have done for business. Right. And I was like, oh, entrepreneurship kind of covers all of those. So. Okay. So growing up as a young Iranian man, Iranian American man, I mean, obviously you were more Americanized than anything like your culture. You probably barely knew much about your culture, except for what your family presented and had within the house. Right. Right. But do you think, especially with like that, you know, like you just said, like you didn't know what you wanted to do. So we don't really know our identity, but we're growing up around people and we start to kind of hang out with certain people and mm, talk like them, look like them, do things like them, do drugs like them, drink like them. Um, listen to the same types of music, things like that. And, but we still have that loss of identity. Do you think that uh, coming from a family where you were, th- your parents, you said they did well for themselves, right? Yeah. Was was your ego starting to form in, in a way where you really thought like, yeah, I can, I can kill it at whatever I do? 100%. Yeah. So it, it was my biggest downfall, I feel like. Why? Because no matter how bad it got, I still had to, I still was able to trick myself into thinking I had it under control. Had what under control? Life in general. Life in general. I hadn't, I hadn't lost everything yet, so to speak. Uh I was still on my way to getting my degree, which I eventually got. In San Diego State. At San Diego State. It took me an extra year. Why? I got got kicked out my entire sophomore year. Why is that? I got caught drinking in the dorms like five or six times and three of them were within the first week. Okay, so now at this point, so what I'm hearing is, is basically you finished strong in high school with all honors, right? Yeah. By the time you got to the, the college life, mm-hmm. um, were you just immersed in the party scene because everybody was oh, yeah. partying there? Oh, yeah. I was, I was young for my grade also. So when I first moved there, I was still 17 for like the first few months. You went to 
you went to San Diego State at 17 years old? Yeah. Because you finished ahead of time because you were so When I originally started school in like first grade, Mm -hmm. they told me I can go up a grade because I was like a little more apt. than Like advanced? Yeah. Okay. So I've always been the youngest of my class. Okay. So I think I had a a little part to play in like, I want to prove myself to everyone and I want to be accepted and stuff. Sure. I'm willing to go to any lengths to get your approval. Yes. And... Some, some of us become addicted to getting people's approval. And I think that happened to me as well. Okay. When I first moved into the dorms, everyone in our floor had a double room. They were stuffed in a really tight room. And one room on each floor was a single. Okay. And I just got blessed by having a single. Okay. So I didn't have a roommate to tell me what I could and couldn't do. So every time we were drinking or partying, I'd be like, everyone come in my room. I don't care. And was everybody partying? Yeah. Was there some people that were not partying and they were just doing their studies in, in their own section like not partaking and all that of course i kind of labeled them as losers like people i didn't want to be around right like straight edge yeah like they're they're, you know they don't want to have fun we're having fun yeah something's wrong with them if they're not drinking. do you think that you seeking that fun was because you may have been sheltered in a sense in your home life because the fact that uh were your parents always encouraging you to go and like be really good in school like most persian parents do of course like it was standard it was like it was of great importance. It was a must, right? Yeah. In our Persian community, it's kind of like doctor, lawyer, engineer, That's or right. failure. So Or failure. I went with option D, I guess. <laughs> well, no, I think a lot of times, especially I, I see this a lot with a lot of Persian kids, and not just Persian kids. I think a lot of kids that grow up in um, well-accomplished student, like families that, that, are, that have done quite well for themselves, that, that there's an expectation from those parents that have gone and become educated that their, that their kids need to follow mm-hmm. in those same uh, footsteps. And like they need to, if they don't, then they'll never amount to anything, especially like if you become a full-blown drug addict, especially in the Persian community, then it's looked down upon. It's frowned upon, right? So so here you are, you, you finally escaped the clutches of, of uh, what was expected of you within uh, your house, even though you were already kind of drinking and, and using a little bit, but now you're in the college life. Everybody's partying. What, what, were you part of a fraternity? Obviously, you weren't. I did join a fraternity. You were? Yeah. Okay. While in dorms or after? While in dorms. So I was pledging a fraternity, and I found a group of guys like, oh, I could pay for my friends and mm-hmm. drink six nights out of the week and, and have this be considered normal. Like, all right, sign me up. So being a part of a fraternity, did you feel like there was like a brotherhood? Definitely. And uh, were the rest of them partying hard, too? Oh, yeah. We were all partying hard, but I was always kind of like a standout one. Like, they would all have, be having fun, like, taking pulls out of plastic handles of vodka. And I I was still, like, kind of deep into Xanax. So kind of deep into? N- n- kind of, or you were? I was, but I'd get, I'd get progressive worse. How were you getting so. your Xanax at this time? I just found people on the college campus that were. They had Xanax in, in large amounts? Yeah. Was it real? Probably not. I, at when this time, say, I still. When you say probably not, what might have been? Pressed with something. I pressed mean, with? Could be fentanyl. Could be fentanyl. Yeah. Was this, what years was, was this? Like 2013. 2013. So, so it was starting to happen. I mean, fentanyl's been around since, I believe, since the 60s. It's been used in the hospital setting for other purposes of, as opposed to what, like what happened more so like in 
2013, 2014, 2015, where it became popularized again and it became more of a street drug, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, there was a lot of dealers or people that were um, pressing these t- certain mm-hmm. types of drugs or lacing drugs with fentanyl because we started seeing a, a, a rise in, in overdoses right around that time. People used to overdose off of heroin all the time. Like this was already known. It was for you know decades. Like we we had I had a friend when I was in the nineties that like there wasn't a lot of people doing heroin in our scene. In our scene, there was a lot of stimulant users, but I had this one roommate that um God rest his soul, his name was Stubby. He was a cocaine guy. He was all about cocaine and getting hookers and this and that and had this little secret life. And then all of a sudden he he like went away to, to LA over a weekend and uh, we found out the stubby overdosed on heroin. And I was like, what? Like, I didn't even expect that. Like, I didn't know he did heroin. But I guess, like, he was somewhere and he was shooting heroin. That was the first time I ever knew somebody that actually overdosed on heroin. This is in the 90s, right? The the craze of, of heroin addiction I saw when I first got sober, I was in rehab with people that were addicted to methadone. They were coming off of methadone. And I was like, who? Like, why are you on methadone? Like, are you kicking heroin? Yeah, we were on heroin for a while. I'm like, that, that wasn't even around, like, much in our scene. Like, I was like a clubber. I went. To, mm-hmm. I was in the club scene. And when people weren't going to be doing heroin to go out to the nightclub and, like, have fun. We, we drank. We did coke. We did meth. Like, that's what it was all about. We did lots of ecstasy, like the love drugs and shit like that. But, um, but like, when fentanyl took off, like, we saw more and more of it. And it wasn't just being laced anymore, I believe, in the last few years. Um, I'd say five, five, yeah, about five years. Like people are getting straight up fentanyl, whether it be in the blues, like the pills or powder form or God knows any, like the patches were, I remember like in the beginning was the, the, the fentanyl patches. That's what like people were getting those and they were actually like opening them up and extracting them. Some were getting them like actually given to them through a doctor. They were being prescribed the fentanyl patch and that's, where I, I I remember seeing like lots of people starting to actually get their because it, it was like the ultimate high right and I want to get into that a little bit more but so during this time in college you you fucked up definitely that's where my disease started to progress okay and when you fucked up like what happened like was it just Xanax was it were you doing other stuff I mean I was doing all the party drugs that you mentioned besides meth pretty much so, so there was a time when you were like partying like like oh yeah like a rock star yeah right definitely i mean it's san diego come on now like it's it's like a place where lots of people are just living it up and you know it was common chicks gone wild exactly gone wild everybody's gone wild so so then when you screwed up in school what happened did your parents catch wind of that well yeah that was not a fun conversation to have because i mean i came home after my freshman year for summer break mm-hmm. and i was like well uh, by the way guys i'm gonna be living here for the next year also they're not gonna let me back and what they say okay uh they weren't happy about it but yeah and i ended up taking uh, classes at saddleback mm-hmm. which is a community college near us in mission viejo in mission viejo yeah. so i was able to i was still doing my ge or my associates anyways mm-hmm. so i was able to transfer those credits and not really lose out on school time okay but, were you loaded oh yeah this is like so you came back to your parents house and you're getting loaded at their house definitely yeah. and going to junior college i was kind of like in the mindset of like well i've already fucked up like yeah and there's no hope 
And again, this is when my pressed Xanax craze, like when I came back home, this was like 2014 through 2015. Mm -hmm. This is when I really found out about the fentanyl pressed Xanax mm -hmm. and like real opiates. How'd you find out about it? They were, they were flooded the streets of Mission Viejo, man. Okay. One of the reasons I, I like to talk about this stuff is there's a lot of people that are in the dark about this. Okay. Or a lot of people that parents that don't know or don't know like how their kids are getting it. So I believe that you're the light, like truly for one, because you've overcome a major amount of addiction. And another is because we got to raise awareness, like fucking people are dying. Right. Yeah. So in, in, and I know this, you are correct during that time in the, in the South Orange County area, not just South Orange County, I mean, addictions everywhere, but like in South Orange County, where a lot of people came from more well-to-do families, there was this fucking craze where, where it was readily available all throughout the streets. How were you kids at that time? Like you were what in your early twenties, correct? Yeah, I was nineteen twenty at this time. Okay, how were you obtaining uh, this stuff? Was it on the dark web? Because we there was access. Was it Craigslist? Was it the plug, as some people call dealers these days, the plug? Okay, who? How are you obtaining this? So I'd say a majority of the people either had a pressing machine, knew someone who did. Or they so you're were telling me there's like somebody that was 19, 20 years old that had a pressing machine that was pressing pills. Yeah, I knew one of them. Okay, and where was he getting or she getting the substances to be able to press them? What was their intent? Yeah, so they'd be getting either the liquid alprazolam and a little bit of the fentanyl the, from the dark. And web. alprazolam is a benzodiazepine. Alprazolam, yeah, is the generic name for the benzo. It's a Xanax. benzo. Okay, yeah. so they were getting that in liquid form. And pressing it with fentanyl, fentanyl as a powder, as a powder to make it into a pill. Yeah. Okay. And you could tell these when, motherfuckers got advanced because I'm yeah. telling you something, right? Like, like in our '90s, like what we were doing, we were pressing pills that were fucking ecstasy, mollies, and we were putting some like uh, mixing things to make it what it was. But, but like this is what it had come to. Now we went from the love drugs in the '90s and like the early 2000s to like straight up stuff that's like just gonna make you go out of your mind and like possibly die. Yeah, and it's a lot cheaper to do it that way for them as well. Okay. It's like if you buy in bulk, you can get them for like 50 cents a pill. Now, the mindset that you had when you when you knew that you you knew the guy that had the pressing machine, did you think like, oh, fuck, I got like the major hookup? Of course. And this is a big deal because I love to get high, right? Were you down on yourself? Yeah. Like because you felt like you were – a failure in your parents' eyes for being so studious and being so scholastic and academic, but now you've gotten to the point in your life where you fucked up in, in San Diego State. You feel like a fucking loser because you didn't become the engineer. You didn't become the lawyer. You didn't become the doctor as was possibly expected. You were going to school and you're you're supposed to be going to business, like become a businessman, mm -hmm. and now you fucked that up too. Uh, did you catch any cases? My first case I caught was during this year that I was back home. Okay, okay. So we'll back up real quick though. During because this is in your early twenties, right? I was still nineteen at the time. Nineteen. 20, How yeah. long was your addiction uh, in action, in motion? At this point, I'd say a good two, three years. I hadn't been in action. And that was with um, benzodiazepines and possibly press pills that had who knows fentanyl in it. Yeah, okay. and a lot of alcohol at this point too, because of the the fraternity life that I came from. So you're mixing alcohol at the time. 
with a lot of benzos. With benzos. That's a scary combination. It's a scary combination because both of them can fucking kill you. Mm -hmm. And then now we're, you're doing them together. I mean, it's more like they can kill you from the withdrawals, definitely. I found that out soon later. So why is that? Did you start had, to withdraw? Yeah, and I had two seizures trying to uh, cold turkey detox on my own. And that's how it can kill you because you can seize up and have a seizure and die. Yeah, and this was before I knew anything about treatment, knew anything about detoxing, about any addictions or nothing. I thought, oh, I could just sweat it out, sleep on my parents' couch for like five days. And well, like, well, let me ask you this. What do you mean? Like, did you think to yourself, I, I want to quit? Or did you just not have any? Were you coming down and you seized up because you didn't have more? By no means did I want to quit yet, but I knew something was up. Like you knew the something was I wrong? Felt, yeah, I knew something was How wrong. did you feel? Can you describe it a little bit? Uh, hopeless, shame, a lot of guilt. Shame about towards who? Your family? Myself. I was like looking back a few years ago, I was like, I never thought I'd see myself in this situation here. Like going from a valedictorian to uh, catching my first case. Uh, I was driving back from class. I was on the phone with a friend. I got pulled over for talking on the phone. And at this time, I was like selling a little bit of weed here, nothing too big, mm -hmm. just enough to fund my own uh, drug uses, yeah. yeah, my own addiction. So you weren't working a job to be able to buy drugs? I was actually serving, I was busting tables at a restaurant on the side uh -huh. and selling weed part-time as well. To be able to nurture the, the addiction? It was just enough to get by and I got pulled over and I had like two ounces of weed in the car. None of it was like stored properly. So my car just reeked. And pulled over in South Orange County? Yeah, right, right here on Marguerite, right by Saddleback College as I was pulling out of the school. Sheriffs? Yeah. Orange County Sheriffs. Yeah. And I thought I had it played off all good because I had a scale in the car too that still had all my weed residue. And did I they had, find the scale? Yeah. So and then did you get arrested for intent to sell? Yes, I did. And I had a bunch of Xanax on me at the time too. And they were all different colors, and some were bit off halfway because I'd be chewing on them through class. And, and the this fucking and that. cops found this shit? Yeah. Holy shit. How old were you? 19. You were 19. Yeah. Caught your first case. That was it? Yeah. What happened? I hired a lawyer, obviously. I think... Your family hired a lawyer. Yeah. Okay. My family hired a lawyer, and I don't think they knew the nature or, like, the level my disease was at this point yet. Mm -hmm. They just thought I was... Uh, lost in kind of the party crowd and back home and they didn't know what I was doing. They didn't what know would your parents say to you when would they sit you down and be like, Arvin, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, I think there'd be a lot of like shame and denial in it as well. They didn't really want to confront the true problem at hand. So they kind of helped me sweep it under the rug. Did they tell you, were they trying to tell you like you can, like you're supposed to be successful. You have so much potential that do they have the frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices conversation with you? Of course. You? Okay. I heard from my mom countless times the story of I came to America with only clothes on my back and mm -hmm. a few dollars in my pocket. And I worked at McDonald's with no English, knowing mm -hmm. no English, mm -hmm. and worked myself to be the person I am today to provide for you. And this is uh, this is how you pay me. <laughs> I, I can sympathize with you because and I can sympathize with them because that's exactly what I used to hear. I mean, this is a land of opportunity, the opportunity. I mean, people come, they migrate to the United States to be able to come and be in freedom and be able to do what they want and chase their dreams, right? This is what I would hear from my mom. We we were going to move to Iran instead from Germany. Instead, we moved to the land of the free, to the land of opportunity to come and raise you to become somebody accomplished and somebody that's got a career path and all this. And you become a complete drug addict? 
Yep, I heard that. What a shame. Like, we can't let anybody know. The family can't know. The community can't know. Like, Persians love to keep shit under wraps. Like, they do not want that shit to get out, right? So so now this is why the, I love that when I asked you, like, the feelings that you were having was definitely guilt, mm -hmm. shame, remorse. Um, so seized up. You had seizures. Well, then what? What happened then? So you would quit and then like a few days dry out and then go get more? So this was when I, uh, after this first case was my first introduction to um, outpatient treatment. Okay. So I was able to show the judge that I'm still a full-time student. Okay. I'm going back to San Diego State, showing them all my transcripts. Um, and I'm a contributing member to society is how we argued it. So I was able to transfer my, my court mandated outpatient center okay. back to San Diego where I was going to start my classes next semester. Uh -huh. And that was my first introduction to, to recovery, to recovery. Okay. And I had no idea what recovery was yet at the time. It was a really small outpatient center down in maybe, San Diego, down in San Diego, maybe two, three people in my group max. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was there to just get off the pills. So I would still smoke weed before I'd go into my outpatient centers and like have a few beers on the weekends. And the outpatient didn't test you. They did. So I was going to get to that. Okay. Part. Okay. Okay. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, no, they no tested me okay. and I came back dirty for a bunch of uh, the benzos because they were still in my system. Mm -hmm. But when they sent them to the lab, they could see that there was fresh alcohol and weed. And the, the program director sat me down and he just got real with me and I wasn't ready for any type of conversation like that. He said, well, think you could just come in here smoke weed and drink fucking beer and like ha ha who he yeah and and go about your life like i know you're young but like uh, what are you what are you trying to do here and i looked at him i looked him dead in the eyes i was like dude i'm here for court man like you're just trying to i'm doing time court yeah i'm doing time please in a piece okay so so then you um then what happened so i was able to graduate from that program i, f I found a way of being my conniving and manipulative self that they only tested me on like Tuesdays mm -hmm. and I found out that alcohol is only in your system for like 80, 80 hours, about 70, 72, 72 hours. hours. Yeah. So I would drink on like Fridays and Saturdays and then go sit in the sauna all Sunday, Monday and just pound water before my outpatient on Tuesday. What do I always say? Calculate. Calculate. You were very calculated. Indeed. You had it all figured out. You knew how to, how to get past the test. Don't we all? Like as kids, when, we're, when I had to take a lot of drug tests, I knew exactly what to do. I had people pee for me. I would take somebody's pee for me in a condom and go warm it up in a microwave for just about 10 seconds and then go pour it in the thing. Sometimes they didn't watch. I'd get away with shit like that. So you had to figure it out. You know how to get past the drug test. Yeah. Finish the, the court program, the outpatient program. Then what? Were you back in school? Yeah. Back in San Diego State. Back in San Diego State. Fraternity life continued. The, the shenanigans were back on. And if anything, they were worse now than ever because I felt like I'd beat the system. I was on top of the world. Nobody can stop me. Mm -hmm. I can get away with anything. And that mindset really started driving me deeper and deeper into the ground. So uh, did you finish school? Surprisingly, yes. I barely. What the fuck? Yeah, I got my degree. You got a degree in business management. Okay, and what was that going to entail? Like, what were you, what was going to come out of that? Managing what business? I had no idea at the time. <laughs> All I knew was that my mom was proud, and I had a piece of paper that said I fucking did it. So you beat the system. You finished school. You got the degree. Uh, everybody's happy, but Arvin's fucked up on drugs. Yeah, and I think a lot of it, like on the inside. Like I knew I was living a lie, but 
I was just faking it till I made it. Where did you go after school was done? So I moved back home and I immediately started looking for work. Okay. And did you find work? Yeah. So in that period of like two, three months that I was looking, I figured uh, real estate sounded appealing. I was, I have a business degree. So I started taking real estate classes. Were you in the throes of your addiction at this point? Yes. This is when I moved back home, I got, I met a buddy who you know very well. Mm -hmm. And I got introduced to Roxy's, the blues. I wouldn't call that a buddy. <laughs> That's not a friend. I would call that a using buddy. Using buddy, okay. yes. As, as the, the, the ever so fantastic and great Siamak would always say, using buddies yes. are not our real friends. Okay. So, okay. So then you, that guy, which I do know exactly who he is. Yes. And he's not well still to this day. Um, you you were introduced to that. Then what? Roxy's are go ahead. Roxy's are um, an oxycodone with no Tylenol filler, mm -hmm. so you're able to crush them up and snort them, mm -hmm. and they are like the instant release. Thirty. Had you ever done the the oxys that were before the Roxy's? No, the OC80s. The OC80s. No, that was you a were, little before my time. You were young. Yeah. You, yeah. And the reason that they created the Roxy's is because the Oxy-80s, to my understanding, from what I remember, the Oxy-80s, uh, heroin addicts would, would uh, extract, you, you could easily extract and shoot it, right? Mm. And so they made these Roxy's, but the addicts were so brilliant in their, uh, and clever in their in their style of using that you, you figured out that you could crush them up and snort them and still get high? Oh, instantaneous. It was almost They're like- They're 30s, right? Was, Those were 30s? Yeah, 30 milligrams. Okay of pure oxycodone and yeah i figured out that if you crush them and snort them it was an instantaneous relief you didn't have to wait that 15 minute period for the pill to digest in your system and i became fascinated with that feeling like i i still remember to this day the feeling of when i did the first one mm -hmm. like it was like a warm tingling sensation so you're okay you're living at your parents house during this time uh -huh. is this the house that you grew up in from childhood yeah. from four years of age yeah so you're in this house you're growing up you're and I'll get into why like this matters to me. Here you were, this kid. You grew up. Your parents raised you. You did good in school. You uh, in high school. You ended up going to college. You fucked up a little bit, and you ended up going back to college. You did well for yourself. You come back to that same house that you're growing up in, but now you are snorting a drug that's making you feel really good, but your life is going down the tubes. Very unmanageable. Very unmanageable. So then, what happened? So. At this point, I was taking real estate classes, uh -huh. local Mission Bay home. Please tell me you passed them. Oh, with flying colors. You passed them on, on snorting Roxy's. I would go to the bathroom during our little five-minute breaks, crush one up on my phone, snort one, walk back into class, like half nodding out the desk. Motherfucker, I went to the art institute on <laughs> meth, and I couldn't fucking last a year. I like, tanked it, right? And here you're passing the shit. Yeah, I mean. Amazing. It always came easy to me. I, I have very good recall, and I can read something and remember what I've read and retain it mm -hmm. to where I, if I take a multiple choice test, I, I, I can easily distinguish which answer would be the right one. So, okay. So you're that smart. I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you passed your real estate exam. Did you become a real estate agent? No, I didn't become a real estate agent because I was still applying to uh, jobs at this time. Okay. And a civil engineering company called HDR. Uh-huh. I'd heard about through the grapevine I was looking for like a real estate technician slash agent position. Okay. And so what that job entailed was 
um, working with right of way or like eminent domain okay. on public highway and railroad projects. I would do all the property acquisition and mm -hmm. relocation and document. Was anyone in your that. family an engineer? My dad was. Is that how you caught wind of this place? Yeah. And my mom worked in the right of way industry, but for the government agency side. Okay. So your parents were basically looking out for your best interest in trying to get you in the path of like a good, uh, perhaps yeah. a career path, like a job yeah. that, that might pay well and you could go live on your own. But here you are with this fucking addiction. And lo and behold, I, it was the first place I applied to and I got the job. Okay. You got the job. And how long did that last? Just about two years, two two years and a couple months. Two years you're working at this job in full blown addiction. Full blown. Somewhat managing, obviously, because you're making. Were you making it to work on time? Yeah, I was making it to work on time. A lot of the mornings I didn't look good. Like I would have to put my bags down and sprint to the bathroom to go throw up. And this I'd is in your pale. early twenties, obviously. Yeah, I'm 21, 22. Okay, okay. Then after two years, what happened? I mean it just became really obvious. Like some days I'd be so sick at my desk that I'd need to get up, leave, and I would go all the way to Long Beach. Sick to pick from up. what? I'd be dope sick. I'd be sick because I didn't have any, this, any These drugs. are opiate withdrawals yeah. that were from the Roxy's? Yeah. Was Xanax still in the mix? Xanax was always in the mix, but why, it, took why a, Xanax? it took a backseat to the opiates because I love the way the opiates made me feel. Okay, but why did you still want the, the Xanax? Cause it just made me feel, it was like my first true love in the drug world. Essentially. I could never let go of that. Okay. Can you describe what it feels like to be on Xanax? So Xanax is almost like alcohol in a pill form. Okay. You can take one pill, one, two milligram bar of Xanax. And I feel like I just drank an entire fifth of tequila. So it kind of, I'm, it, it sauces you. Yeah. It loosens me up. I'm nicer. I'm more talkative. Uh, can you, can you actually put words together or do you think I you thought can? I could, do you think you can, but you I sound could. like you're fucked up. Yeah. I okay. sound like an idiot to, a, to the average person that's hearing you. Yeah. They're like, this guy's fucked up. Now, what did the Roxy's make you feel like? Like, uh, this one's like almost indescribable. Like it just, the most euphoric feeling from any substance I've ever felt was probably from these Roxy's. Mm -hmm. Like you just have an entire warmth of your That's whole right. body. Well, I always thought when I did opiates, like it was like a warm hug. Yeah. Just like yeah. a warm hug. Little pins and needles scratching at you. It and it just sedates like, you. Like yeah. You, it you, mellows you out. It chills you out. When you were um, taking these, the, the Roxy's, did you fall asleep? Did you nod off a lot? All the time. All the time. When you, when you were, well, did you smoke cigarettes? Surprisingly, I didn't smoke cigarettes. I okay. smoked a lot of weed. Okay. When you would nod off, did you were you experiencing any overdoses? Not yet, because I was still taking the prescription pills. Okay. So I would go from Mission Viejo all the way to Long, Long Beach, Beach just to get my drugs because I knew a guy out there who had prescription. How'd you meet that guy? Through another using buddy. Okay. And this way this guy was the plug, the, the, the drug plug. dealer. Yeah, supposedly he was like a gangbanger out there in Long Beach. There's and a gangbanger that's just selling Roxy's. I thought I was so cool, man. Because be you knew the guy. I was working a corporate nine to five in an office, had my own desk, like dressed Did up you, nice. I'd go all the way Here's my down question. Did you Beach. ever nod out at work? Of course. This is where they started catching on. And they started noticing something was up. HR pulled me into their office a few times. Okay. And I was able to get by the first couple times and doing the, the whole waterfall tear show for them. Like, I'm not happy. They're like, well, whatever's going on, you're really wearing it. And so Do you I think that they had a hint that this guy might be on drugs. Yeah. I mean, a couple of my uh, coworkers had reported that they were worried about me because they saw me sleeping at my desk. I, I understand. I've been there. So then you then went to um, what happened? What next? 
So I took a leave of absence, a mm -hmm. sick leave, mm -hmm. and I went to detox. Okay, so you went to detox, you had insurance, you went to treatment. Mm -hmm. Was it in Orange County? Yep. Okay, and this is obviously, you'd already experienced um, outpatient, now you went to an actual detox. How long did you last there? So at this point, I really wanted my job, so I was perfect at just playing the game. I was in treatment, finishing the treatment center. I believe I was there 60 days. Were you taking it serious? No. Not, not one bit? Not one bit. The plan was in your in the back of your mind, did you have this plan that I'm going to stay here and then I'm going to get out and I'm still going to use? Of course. I'm going to use Roxy's and Xanax? I'm going to use it uh, manageably. That's what I trick myself into thinking. So your disease, we'll call it disease ego, whatever you want to call it, was so strong that you were basically saying, fuck everything they're telling me in rehab. Uh, thanks for the information. I got what I need. I've got an ulterior motive. I've got a bigger plan than this. And that plan is to nurture my addiction. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. 60 days out, how fast did you use? Hours. I, I think I had a, a stizzy weed pen at my house that I found in my room. So the second I got home, I was hitting that. I was high on weed. And then from weed, it turned into other things almost immediately? Yeah, about a week two max maybe for the benzos. Mm -hmm. And then because uh, I can convince myself that the benzos weren't terrible. Like they, they can't kill you if you take one. Right. And at this point, I'd been introduced to the, the fentanyl pressed Roxy's. By who? Um, so one of, I found a new dealer that was much closer than Long Beach. And I noticed that when I snorted one of his pills, mm -hmm. it was the equivalent feeling of doing like six of the real ones. And I was making a pretty decent amount of money for a guy my age living at home with no rent. I just paid my car, my car insurance, and that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. and I want to show you what some people are saying. Trey says, in the beginning, oxycodone gave me loads of energy before it sedated me. Um, here, Ariane Clark says, there are parents with children who have overdosed on fentanyl that are trying to push legislation to charge drug dealers with murder because people are overdosing in massive proportions. She's saying this, and I want you to know, during that time that this was happening to you, I had a friend that was in Wisconsin who actually was hitting me up to help her son get into treatment. Um, we had it all arranged. We were setting it all up, and he ended up, um, the night before he was supposed to go to treatment, he was found in his car with needles and he had a fentanyl overdose that he died in his car. Now, uh, after that happened, uh, obviously she was never the same, my friend. Uh, she and I stayed in contact, close contact. And more recently, this is many years later, I'm talking like five years later, more recently the, the, uh, the dealer had been distributing fentanyl in that local area and neighborhood. He was charged with murder by because there was a plethora of people that had ended up dying and overdosing on fentanyl during that time. So, um, wow. As they should be. I mean, if you're willingly knowing, knowingly pushing like pure fentanyl, like, yeah. that, that shit's going to kill. It, it's going to kill. I'm massive. actually, I'm going to have my friend Ricky P on the show soon too, because he used to be a fentanyl dealer and, um, and he's totally trans like transformed his life. It took a lot. It took that a lot of cases, uh, even after getting sober, countless vain attempts like there were so many attempts but still he he's now sober and he's on the right path i'm gonna have him on soon too great guy but um <clears throat> but i hated him when i found out he was a fentanyl dealer because he would talk about it like like it was cool or some shit I'm like there's nothing fun even though even I, me being like an ex-drug dealer and thinking like i had the, 
the glorious life, which in the end I became a total fucking homeless man, to hear him like showing off that he was a fan. I'm, dude, I'm like, dude, you're a killer. Like, are you kidding me? Not that I care. It's about funny him. that you bring up that part too, because I had a childhood friend that I grew up with, another innocent Persian boy like me growing up, and our families knew each other. And um, he was one that I would get uh, a lot of my pills on early from, from his grandma. Mm -hmm. And he fell deep into the, the gang ways and slinging fentanyl eventually. And mm -hmm. he's uh, a batch of his fentanyl was traced back to him that three people overdosed on. So, so he got in trouble. He's currently facing a lot of serious like, time. Like right that's now. straight manslaughter. That's yeah, what he that's, yeah. I saw his name in the news on like ABC and I was shocked. Wow. 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 Okay. So, at this point, you're like in your mid-20s now. And how many times did you go to treatment? Overall, I'd probably say about 10 times. Because you just life just wasn't working and you kept – were you overdosing at this time? Oh, yeah. I'm no stranger to overdose, unfortunately. Um, it was right around when I got introduced to the fentanyl pills that I noticed. These were press pills that were that were actually being labeled as benzos, but laced with fentanyl or, or so they would they would be labeled as uh, just regular blues. They'd be pressed exactly the same with the same marker, the M box. They're a blue pill. They're a blue pill, tiny blue pill, <coughs> but they're much more chalky. They were street drugs, of course. Okay, were you smoking them? I did smoke them. But I preferred snorting them. For some reason, I had a fascination with just like the ritual of crushing it up. And Okay. Did they hurt like crazy when you snorted them? Yeah. Because obviously, like, I don't think whoever pressed them, the, the intent wasn't really to snort. Right. They were more just to take the pill. Yeah. Right. Now, by snorting them, you got this overwhelming sensation. Oh, yeah. Immediately. Okay. I used to get that overwhelming sensation from snorting uh, crystal. I'm talking like crank meth. Like just oh my god, I felt like somebody stuck a fucking pencil up my nose, but and it would hurt for a good like minute, but then like later on, like you just level out and be like, oh my god, euphoria, ultimate euphoria. And we're not saying this stuff for people to like to go out and experiment. Like this is what drug drug users do. Yeah, it, it becomes a way of life. It becomes an addiction. So these were the original blues. Yeah. Do you know right now, twenty twenty one. You know I have a TikTok presence, and right now, like, it's growing, and I'm getting – if you see the messages I get, I, I fucking got people from all across America, from all age groups. I'm talking, like, 13-year-old kids, 17-year-old kids to fucking 25-year-olds to 40-year-olds to 50-year-olds that are addicted to the, to the fentanyl blues. Mm -hmm. They are addicted to blues, and, I'm, and I just think to myself, like, how sad that – how sad is yeah i understand addiction and i understand humanity and how humanity can become addicted to many different things but when it comes to like drug addiction how sad that our country right now is it, there's just this massive amount of fentanyl blues pills that are being distributed by people that have presses by the cartels by whoever that how sad it is that that addictions running rampant in people's lives to the point where they can't they don't even know like they know there's a problem, but they don't even know that this isn't the way it was supposed to be. I used to often think in the deep, in like the depths of my uh, addiction, I, like there was just a little voice in the back of my head that would often say, "It's come to this. Like this isn't supposed to be like that's that's that. This isn't what I grew up to become. Like a full blown junkie, right? And so you were going to a lot of different centers at this time, but you just weren't getting it." 
Because I didn't want to get it. Why didn't you want to get it? Had uh, you just so, given had, had you just given up on life as a whole? Yeah. So early 2020, I eventually got fired from this job okay. that I had for the last two years. Uh, they were tired of me nodding off at of my the desk. I, I don't know why they weren't okay with that, but <laughs> my work. I was like, my work is getting turned in on time. It's good quality, and was it really good quality though? It wasn't the. The work. I mean, my boss to this day, I'm still in touch with him there. Uh -huh. He he saw a lot in me, and I actually just made an amends to him a month ago. Nice. So that was that was a really cool process. And but at the time you lost the job, and then what would you do? I filed for EDD, and this was at the beginning of 2020, and two months later is when the whole COVID thing happened. So kind of just nobody's working, everybody's out of work. I didn't. I just this started my rehab hopping year. Mm -hmm. I would call it. Right. I think last year alone, I was in like six or seven different treatment centers. Because at the time you weren't yet 26 and you had insurance. Yep. This was my last year on mom and dad's insurance. Okay. And then in the end, you ended up at a recovery home in Los, a recovery home in Los Angeles. Yes. Uh, where you were taking a break from using. Yes. <laughs> and I say that because we already know. Yes. Come on. We know what goes on in those places. Uh -huh. um, but so you took a break from uh, using, but you had a case that you had to go and do some time in jail before, correct? Yeah. So at this time, I had already had two DUIs and um, I had a Driving felony. under the influence of fentanyl? First one was alcohol. Okay. Second one was fentanyl and Xanax. Okay. I did you ever shoot drugs? No, I never did. Okay. Did you ever, uh, did you ever get straight fentanyl and use that? Uh, towards the end I did, and I didn't even make it one hit. I would immediately overdose. Okay. You were overdosing a lot. Yeah. Unfortunately. How were you getting that? The straight fentanyl? Um, I came, so I did a three month jail sentence for my third DUI. You had three DUIs at this point. Three DUIs. I, a week after I got out of that LA treatment center, Okay, I was back in jail. Let's not call it a treatment center. That's not a treatment center. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're not licensed for treatment. All right. Yeah. We'll yeah, just yeah. call it a uh, so-called recovery home. Okay. Gotcha. Yes, yes. But yeah, wherever, whatever that place was, sure. a week after I got out of there, I was back in jail. Okay. Uh, were people using in that place? Yeah. They were using fentanyl? Yeah. In, in that so-called recovery home? Yeah. I remember walking into my room to like fold my laundry one day and from the bathroom, it smelled like like burnt popcorn, which is what the, the blues, the fentanyl blues smell like when you put them on foil and you smoke them. There wasn't staff there to regulate? They were, but I, they, they eventually found out and all he he got his phone taken away for a couple of days. <sighs> yeah. Okay. And people wonder why I have these opinions. Like my opinions are valid. Like I, that ain't recovery. I'm so happy. Okay, so you got out of there. Um, at this point, you were overdosing because you were was the was it powder fentanyl that you were using at this point? No. So at this point, it was it was still the blues. I mean, I I didn't really dabble with the powder fentanyl too much. I did it maybe a handful of times, and literally each time I tried it, I immediately overdosed. Okay, explain overdosing. Like, what happens when you overdose? I wish I could tell you. All I remember, and from my point of view, I remember taking a hit. And then I remember waking up on a gurney with people uh, shooting Narcan into me or the, the nasal passage Narcan, and I'm getting put in the back of an ambulance going into the hospital. How many times did this happen? At least 10. Okay. Where would it happen? At your mother's house? 
Yeah, one time it was three nights in a row, man. You overdosed three nights in a row. In a row. At your mom's house. At my mom's house. Did your mom find you? My poor younger brother did, and okay. he's in medical school and CPR certified, so he would be the one that would revive me every time. He would do CPR. He he would Narcan you himself. No, he would do the mouth to mouth. I don't think they had Narcan at the, after that. Those three days. My then mom, they got Narcan. Yeah, yeah. Um, three nights in a row you overdosed, and like this is what I want to know. After like, let's say the first night that you overdosed, when you came out of that, what what was your mindset? Was it like, I'm good? No, it was just, yeah, exactly. I was like, I, I just did a little too much, and I did. I knew exactly how much I did. Was it powder? No, it was the the blue pills. So, so you were overdosing on the blues. Yeah, I was overdosing on because the blues. of snorting it. Yeah, so I snorted one whole one. And the next night, I was like, fuck, I just did way too much. So I cut the next one in half. And you still overdosed. I snorted a half, and I still overdosed. Uh -huh. Third night, I cut the half in half. And you still overdosed. Still overdosed. Okay. So, so you don't even know who's making these or how much, like, what strength is, uh, the amount of strength. The dealers that... don't even know. They just randomly press it. They don't care who gets the bad ones. They, it, honestly, I've, I've in, talked to the dealers. Their intent is to make money. They don't give yeah. a shit about uh, who's going to die from it? It can't be traced back to them. Their their mind mindset is like an overdose. If people hear about it, it brings the junkies to them. So they, it's like good marketing. It's a very it's, sick way of living. Yeah. yeah. Um, you said you talked to a dealer, and what did he tell you? He would he would promote his his drugs by oh someone already died off this. Be careful. And like that was literally on his Snapchat, like captioned. So he was marketing his stuff on snapchat yeah so kids were basically able to find this dealer through a snapchat because if they wanted fenny which fentanyl they call it mm -hmm. fenny that they could just follow this guy on a snapchat mm -hmm. and, and then how would they have it distributed to them he would either mail it out he was shipping out of state or he'd tell them to come come to him oh he was from out of state no uh, he was from here in orange County. oh he would ship it out to across america the one that he's uh, current because the guy who died off the batch that I mentioned earlier, he's the, the guy that I knew that is currently fighting the case, was my roommate in treatment that got well, relapsed, and went out of state to Utah to a treatment center to get better there. Mm -hmm. He got a hold of this guy, shipped him a package to Utah, and he died in the Utah facility over there. And all of that is in the, the news article I was reading. Gotcha. So they, they get creative. They they find any way to get it out to wherever they want. After you went to the uh, so-called recovery center in L.A., then you came and did some time in jail for your DUIs. Mm -hmm. How long? Uh, six months, but I got out in 90 days with good behavior. Good behavior. So you acted well. Did you use drugs when you were locked up? Oh, yeah. How did the people get drugs in there? <laughs> they get they get even more creative they either put it up their ass mm -hmm. they uh swallow balloons mm -hmm. or what i saw the most popular right now is unfortunately for me there was no opiates like like fentanyl or heroin in there it's uh -huh. all meth is in jail okay all meth and i went in early october last you year. know what's weird is back in the 90s like the late 90s early 2000s when i was in jail they would they, they, the Southsiders would bring it in balloons, and it was heroin. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they had the mental health mods reserved for quarantining because this was height of COVID. Mm -hmm. So I was in a 
10 by eight cell with one other person for the first 20 days mm -hmm. and you don't get out 23 hours, 45 minutes a day. If they remember to open your door for your shower and phone call, right? you're lucky. They feed you through the hole in the wall and yeah, there's nothing. So I got lucky that my cellmate had snuck in an eight ball of meth. Lucky in your addiction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'd never really done that. I didn't like feeling that up, but uh, it was just something that would make me get out of my own head. Right. So after you got released from there, then you you obviously came in. We came into each other's lives, mm -hmm. but not right away because no. you got out and you got into a hotel room that your parents got for you because they were trying to figure out what to do with you. Yeah, they didn't want me at home. Yeah, they want you at home. So they... they enabled you by well i won't say that because they're good parents they're good people they didn't know what the hell to do with you but they wanted to keep you in safekeeping but the problem was that they got you a hotel room where you were having a bunch of people come to you yeah and you you were getting high in that hotel room the first first night i was trying to call you you were ignoring my calls i don't even remember that I, but I, yeah you I, were ignoring my calls and i didn't i wasn't surprised but um you ended up kind of going off the Richter and then ended up in a detox. Now, this is where we get into the recovery part. You went into a detox and uh, and you and I were in communication and we were talking via Zoom because it was, you know, height of COVID, like we couldn't really, I couldn't come visit you. But like, I remember talking to you and there was tears in your eyes. Yeah, I finally, I finally had enough. I looked at you and I thought to myself, you know, this kid, it could be 50-50. Like he might be telling me everything I want to hear. He's going to come out. I'm going to try to help him. And, um, and uh, he may just pull the wool over my eyes or attempt to and still go get loaded because that's his M.O. He's been doing this for a long time. It's just what he does. Or he's going to take this thing by the horns. Yeah, and I really won't do like that. That was that turning point for me. I still think I had held on to a little bit of old ideas. I think a little in. bit of more than a little bit. Because I, I the first few days when yeah. I came into your house, I saw what your your guys' house was about. And I was like, holy shit, what did I get myself into? He told me this was a structured house, but I didn't know it was this structured. Right. You came into a sober living because we had to get you detox first. We weren't going to let you detox within that sober living house that we had. At the time, it was the Limitless house. It was in Lake Forest, California. You walked into something. Seeing one of your old using buddies there mm -hmm. doing well for himself. Aria, we're going to have him on the podcast soon too. And and then you were supposed to check in with probation and uh, you wanted to go on your own. You wanted to go by yourself because on the way back, you wanted to stop by a, a plug's house to get loaded, right? Yeah. But luckily, Melody wouldn't allow that. She wanted to actually go with you and bring you back. So we got in front of that and you got honest. Yeah, that was the first time I really... Uh, did get honest with myself. You got and honest with yourself, and you, you got I went straight to Arya because I thought I didn't know what the house was like, so I thought maybe he'd keep it on the back burner. Yeah, but instead he told like, us. Yeah, I was he like, let Arya's us know. the only one in the house I could trust. Like I know him. Like no, but that's when I realized real friends don't co-sign each other's bullshit. They okay, don't, they don't. They'll, they'll hold you accountable. So we had a lot of ups and downs with you over a period of time. Even though you weren't uh, seeking to go get loaded, you would still. I caught you on your phone a couple of times talking to some people that probably weren't, weren't the best friends to be talking with. But um, after doing a lot of ego puncturing, uh, oh, yeah. and I know you hated my guts for a while, but after we got you to a point, wh why did you start to take this thing so seriously? I mean, I saw in my peers around me 
how uh, better their lives were getting, getting. You know, the bets were on. There, there was bets on you that you weren't going to make it. I've heard. Not from my side. I, I, I bet that you would make it. That you could make it. That you should make it. Like, because I believe in people and I see the best in them. And when I know that the the, the kids got hard, he was crying on the on the Zoom call. But people didn't think your best friend didn't. Or one of your best friends. One of your old old using buddies. We won't even call it a best friend because. You weren't friends during that time, but when he saw you, he's like, I don't think he's going to make it. Yeah. And I, I kind of knew that all bets were against me. I mean, I had the worst track record anyone could ever imagine. So I hadn't done it. I'd done anything to prove myself worthy of anyone's hope just yet. But I would look around at my peers and I would kind of see how happy they were and how the level of peace of mind and serenity they had and the path they were going along. And I was like, you know, if I would have just put my full potential and everything from the beginning before it got like to this bad, like I imagine where I could have been that day. And I told myself, I'm still young, dude. Like it's never too late. Right. What do I have to lose? Like, I've been so resistant to trying something differently. I've been trying to do things my way for so long running Arvin's show. Mm -hmm. And it literally just ended me back in the hospital, back in jail or back in rehab every single time. Do you think turning 26 and knowing you didn't have insurance anymore and that your parents paid for your last detox out of pocket, but they're not going to pay anymore, that may have put something in your head too where you're like, maybe. Oh, and your parents stopped talking to you for a while too. Yeah, I remember. That was that was a big one for me because we kind of are codependent on each other. Oh, you used to be able to get everything you needed from them. Yeah. So that was, yeah, definitely like subconsciously I knew that I didn't have that that option to mm -hmm. go back to treatment anymore. Mm -hmm. And, and I just, uh, I was like, what do I have to lose? Like if it, if it tries, if I try it and it doesn't work, I'll be back where I am right now. And I, I haven't lost much. When I first came into your house, I had a couple pairs of clothes. I didn't have a bank account, didn't have a wallet, didn't have a phone. I had literally nothing. I remember you asked me, do you have a sponsor? I looked at you. I was like, dude, I don't even have a phone. How am I going to get a sponsor? And I'm going like, to call him. And you're like, don't worry, I'll get you set up with one. And, Literally that next day, I had a sponsor, and I'm still with them today. And I, how long are you sober now? I'm sober 249 days today. Which is how many months? Eight and a half about. You're at eight and a half months of sobriety. This is probably the longest you've been sober since you first started using. Yes. Um, you're now helping people. You are somebody else's spiritual advisor, mentor. Yeah, I'm taking another guy through the steps currently. I love that. Yeah. You're active in the recovery community. If I was to look at your phone now, as opposed to your first couple of months, I would probably see a lot more recovery people's names in the top of the texts than oh, than, yeah. than old uh, acquaintances. Definitely. Um, you also have seen them come and go. You've seen people overdose and die. We had a friend that just died less than a week ago that you were that was around us. Um, you have hope now. You just started a new job. Right. And and this job is promising. I know that about it. This is what I told you from day one when I looked at you on that Zoom call and I said, listen, don't be down on yourself for losing out. I know you're a valed valedictorian. I know that you finished top of your class. I know that you went to school and, and got, uh, an, you know, a degree. But you thought because you had cases, you had caught cases that you're never going to get anywhere because these cases are going to haunt you for a long time. And I shared my experience with you how I thought the same thing. But, like, we stay sober and we move mountains. We change shit. We change everything about us. The world changes for us, right? Like We, we get to be on this other path. So this is remarkable. Uh, what I want to kind of close out with is basically 
use her as a guy. And this is where the hope is. If anybody's watching this, they they may be able to learn something more from you than they would from me babbling a lot, right? Is what what kind of hope can you put out there for families that have a loved one that is struggling? Like, what can you say about that? And what kind of hope can you put out there for individuals who are in the depths of their disease and their alcoholism or their addiction? Let's start with the families. What would you say to family members would, would be a recommendation that you could give? Don't lose hope because it's never too late. I mean, my family had to watch me for almost the better part of a decade go through this. And don't overlove your kids to death. Kind of tough love will really go a long way. Okay. There are some people that don't believe in that. Yeah. But um, I believe if you coddle them, you might, you might bury them, right? Yeah. So, and then the other thing, as far as for the individual, there's people right now that probably doing fentanyl within a short radius of this house, right? Like it's, it's runs rampant in, all around us. So um, for an addict that might happen to be watching this, uh, this episode, what can, a person who's addicted, what can you recommend? What can you say? Just reach out, talk about it, ask someone for help. Like I always thought that reaching out and asking for help was a sign of weakness. Mm -hmm. And I, in our society today, you can't be weak. You have to be strong. No, dude, that's, that shows how strong you are and how willing you are to like want to change your life for the better. If you just stay open-minded and willing, uh, remarkable things could fall in place after that. The second I was open to taking simple suggestion from another person mm -hmm. and willing to admit that I literally knew nothing and willing to change everything, that's when I started seeing the difference in my life. Beautiful. Beautiful. What an honor and a privilege it is to have you coming down here and, and be on this podcast. I mean, I, I absolutely adore you. I love you. I love when I see you and like you give me a big hug and I'm like, I get to actually uh, embrace a man who could be, who could have died, who truly could be dead because that one out of all those overdoses, that one time that could have happened to where we would have lost Arvin and here you are and you're alive and you're well and, there's people amongst you, around you, that are a band of brothers that were all overdosing on fentanyl too. You guys are all alive. That So people fucking make it out. People can make it out. As long as they get out of their own way, as long as they don't let their egos kill them, because that's what kills them. As long as they don't keep convincing themselves that I just did a little bit too much that time. I won't do bullshit. You just said it. You fucking did a whole pill. You overdose. The next day you did a half of the same pill. You overdose. The next day you did a quarter of that. I mean, that's same cunning, time. baffling and powerful to the, th to the point where you think to yourself, like, wow, you actually think like you were going to make it. That is an insanity. I don't know what it is. Total insanity. Yeah. What a beautiful journey to, to hear you know, from your childhood all the way through your addiction to the point of now where you, you, you're living a life that's worth living. You know, what a beautiful thing. I love you very much. I love you all for coming really and, and checking us out today. And uh, we will be back on Tuesday. We have a special guest on Tuesday, Louis Offer. He's, a, he's one of my recovery brothers. Love you all very much. And uh, we're going to sign up. Have a good rest of your Sunday. Bye.